Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, Rudyard. Hey, Stuart. Great to connect. Well, busy week to wrap up. I want to spend the first half of the show talking about the ongoing saga of Chinese election interference, Uh, a sense maybe that we're in the third period, the ninth inning. I don't know. Pick your sports analogy, but stuff has continued to happen. I think now it's kind of important to think about what do we learn from this? What do we do next? And then the back half of the show, let's talk Canadian symbols, Canadian identity, that Eternal question, what the heck is Canada? New Passport attempting to answer that question, eliciting a lot of debate and discussion. But Sean, let me come to you first on the Chinese election interference story. Um, We learned this week uh, on Friday, the date of our recording today, the 12th of May, that it seems that CSIS had been providing global affairs with uh, extensive briefings and information on the spy, which we're now kicking out of the country, I believe this Saturday, he's on a plane back to Beijing. What do you think about that, Sean? The fact that, again, we have more information that it seems that the government, at least global affairs, was aware now for years, aside from the whole saga around Mike Chong, that there was a Chinese operative identified to them, if this leak is correct, by... American intelligence, when he arrived in Canada in 2019, who engaged in serial um, intimidation, surveillance, everything that you would think would be the, just the basics for action, for declaring somebody persona non grata, as we've now finally done three plus years later, and kicking him the heck out of the country. Yeah, the, the story you mentioned uh, from today really... Um conveys a sense of paralysis across the government that in spite of uh, this pretty extraordinary evidence presented um, through CSIS uh, to different parts of the the federal government, um, this uh, Chinese official was able to remain in his role with all of the um, diplomatic immunities and other benefits that, that come with it um, and as we now know, um, continue to carry out some of the very types of of activities um, that that we were warned about in the first place. Uh, there's so much to say about uh, this file that um, that we can get into in this conversation. But in a way, Rudyard, uh, I'm struck by um, something that uh, Foreign Minister Mel- Melanie Jolie said to Conservative MP Michael Chong last week when he was pressing her on a parliamentary committee about the need to um, the need to expel uh, this official. And she talked uh, about the different interests that we needed to account for, uh, including our economic interests. And it, it just seems to me um, that 
in thinking about Canada's relationship with China in general and thinking about how to deal with this uh, official in particular. Um, the government had its uh, ranking of the different responsibilities and interests that um, that a national government needs to uh, uh, account for, be responsible for wrong. Um, that rather than thinking about protecting the national interests first and foremost, uh, the government was prepared to put all of these other interests ahead of it. And, and I'll, I'll stop here, but it's just worth emphasizing, guys, that there is no doubt to me that this official would not be leaving on a plane come this Saturday were it not for the fact that these reporters brought it to our attention. So make no mistake, the government will sort of declare that it has acted now, um, but it's only because it has been pushed into a corner. Um, and I think that's something that can't be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Good point. Well, let me build on that because, Stuart, one of the things I've been struggling a bit this week is you could see, you could draw like an arc, a trajectory from 2019 when CSIS gets probably these briefings from their American counterparts. This guy's in Canada. He's a threat. Do something about him. CSIS sends these warnings and reports and detailed information up the chain to global affairs. Nothing happens. CSIS gets more frustrated somebody at CSIS or a group of people at CSIS reach the breaking point and they begin saying, we have to take matters into our own hands and begin to leak this information to the press because the government's not acting. Sean's right. If this had never appeared in the press, the spying on Mike Chong and potential intimidation of his family overseas, we wouldn't have this guy leaving the country on Saturday. But Stuart, this is not good. This is not a good state of affairs when your intelligence agency, at least part of it, is stepping way out of the its lane, right? I mean, they're stepping right into policy making. This is the opposite of what CSIS should be doing. I don't know. How do you think about that as a a reporter? Um, great leaks, but boy, this is not a healthy sign when you have an intelligence service. Let's face it, making policy for the government. That's what's happened here. Yeah, I actually think that's one of the big sort of underexplored parts of this, which is that, you know, the the journalistic mindset, which is, I think, natural because leaks kind of make journalism happen. And generally, you're relying on that to sort of um, give you insight into things you wouldn't have insight into otherwise. And but the, the history of these stories is, is sometimes that the leakers, they're either working for some kind of greater ideal or it's kind of pure self-interest. And I think it's tough. That's one of the hardest parts of being a journalist is figuring that out. Um, but on top of that, I would say that leaks in general are bad. It's it's really bad to have this kind of pushing our discourse and pushing public policy because it's not a democratic way to do things. These are people who are, their job is to sort of work behind the scenes and then ship things up to the democratically elected people. But you know, most of the time with a big high profile leak like this, you can see some public interest. And that is the journalist's job is to say, is there public interest in this information coming to light? But I do think a healthy layer of skepticism is really important when you're dealing with any kind of leak like this. So, Sean, let's talk a little bit about where we go from here. Stuart and Jeff Russ have had some great reporting this week on, you know, ideas like uh, a foreign uh, foreign agents kind of registering Canada, Australia. There's other examples around the world. But we saw this week some some kind of leaking of the government, maybe on its own, maybe purposely, that that Canada was in a, uh, in a position to 
kind of reapply or reassert an option to join AUKUS, which is the Australia-UK-US defense arrangement that's primarily centered in Asia and is about challenging uh, Chinese aggression um, in the South Pacific and in Asia generally. Why does that story suddenly come out of the blue, Sean? And why does it maybe take on increasing relevance and importance to the national conversation in the light of Chinese election interference as it's been exposed the last two weeks? Well, let me take up that question um, by continuing where I, I wrapped up earlier about the ordering of our of our interests, that a lot of the conversation in the past 10 days or so, guys, has focused on the economic uh, and geopolitical consequences uh, of expelling this diplomat in the form of a retaliation from China. And we've seen one Canadian diplomat expelled from China. We're, we're anticipating possible further uh, forms of retaliation, whether it's uh, you know blocking Canadian exports from entering the Chinese market or whatever. But I think a piece of uh, of that story that has gone unaddressed, and I'd be interested in, in, in your thoughts, Rudyard, is that it's only one half of the equation. Uh, when we think about how we respond to these different types of issues, of course, um, thinking about our economic and geopolitical relationship with China is important. But there's also our economic and geopolitical relationship with the rest of the world, including our key allies. And uh, I just wanted to cite a, a, a sentence from a really great uh, a paper released this week by a, a Washington-based think tank that was co-authored by v Vincent Rigby, who incidentally was a former national security advisor in the Privy Council office, and it, it reads as follows, quote, the glacial pace at which Canada appears to be adapting to the realities of the modern uh, great power competition has left it behind the curve with consequences for both Ottawa's reputation among its allies and its ability to protect Canadian territory, sovereignty, and contribute to global peace and stability, unquote. And I, what, what strikes me about that, guys, is that if the Trudeau government is so preoccupied with the possible economic costs of taking a strong line vis-a-vis -vis China, it's risks ignoring the economic consequences of not doing so, because we find ourselves on the outside looking in of AUKUS, as you mentioned, Rudyard, as well as the Indo-Pacific economic framework, a 14-country economic pact designed to sort of minimize the economic ambitions and power of China. So it seems to me in you know, a one way that the hub has tried to contribute to this conversation over the past couple of weeks is to say, yes, of course, we need to think about our economic relationship and our economic interests vis-a-vis -vis China. But we also need to think about our interests vis-a-vis -vis the US, the UK, Australia, the, the rest of the G7, so on and so forth. And it seems to me that has been lacking in the way that the Trudeau government has handled this file, really dating back to it when, when it was first elected. Um, and it had ambitions about you know doing free trade with China and all the rest. Yeah, for listeners who really want to wonk out, we will paste a link to this uh, Vince Rigby paper in the show notes today. More precisely, Amal Adder Guzman, our amazing producer, will do that. Um, and it's an important thing to read. You know, one thing I read this week, it probably stuck with me the most. And what I came away with was a renewed appreciation of how this AUKUS relationship is, I'll bet, a lot more than sending frigates through the state straits of Taiwan. It is about intelligence sharing, and it is about tech transfer. And, you know, the paper makes a point. Is Canada on the verge 
of getting a kind of second-rate status inside the five eyes, the key kind of intelligence powers? Are we going to get a kid's seat to sit in the corner of the room as opposed to a big boy's chair at the table? And then on tech transfer, you know, this is the holy grail stuff. This is the latest chips, the best AI. Um, this is the stuff that, you know, allies with a capital A are going to get and share vis-a-vis -vis the United States and its uh, global technological, not just military, but technological preeminence now in AI. So I look at that paper and I read that and it really scares the bejesus out of me, Stuart, because I, I feel like, as Sean said, there's a there's a lose-lose here for Canada if we're not careful, getting bullied by the Chinese, intimidated, penetrated, and then getting shunted out of our historical, you know, trifecta of, of power, which has orbited around the UK-US relationship, but then adding Australia to that. We've been in the center of that for so long, and to get pushed out of that orbit, boy, Stuart, th this strikes me as like, I don't, I don't want to exaggerate here, but really a national security, technological, and ultimately potentially an economic degradation of Canadian power and security over the medium to long term. Yeah, I was actually was thinking about that today, that the, the appearance of being serious about this stuff is almost as important as being serious about it. And I think that matters domestically too, because if you do a thought experiment of how will this what is a good outcome for the liberals on this controversy? It's not a public inquiry, which goes on forever. It's not even David Johnston coming out and saying, don't worry, guys, I looked into it and everything's fine, because then we'd have even more leaks, presumably from CSIS, to counter that. And if you sort of game it out towards the next election, where I think there'll probably be this will reach a fever pitch is when we're actually involved in you know the democratic process of an election and we're thinking about interference the best defense the government has is the idea among Canadians that they're actually being serious about this because Canadians have to trust that when they vote, it's for something. Um, so that applies geopolitically and domestically that this government is sort of required to look serious and be serious, which is the best way to look serious. Um, and it <laughs> works on both levels. Well, final question to you, Sean, the segment though, just to be my regular cynical self is do Canadians care? I mean, this government has been very successful in putting guns over, sorry, butter over guns, as you've written in the hub. People want dental care. They want pharmacare. They want the care, the care economy, uh, you know, the nanny state in a kind of service, you know, delivery sense. Are they up for 2% spending on national defense? I don't know. Maybe the prime minister is simply being honest when it was leaked in, in the Washington Post, um, the so-called discord leaks that came out earlier this uh, uh, last month, I guess, that it's never going to happen. Canadians are just, we are too insulated, too self-satisfied, uh, too clued out to really understand why there's big things at stake, big decisions being made, and we're not part of it. Yeah, I think that's a big risk. You know, one thing that struck me, guys, over the past few weeks is that this is the first time in a long time we've had a sustained political focus at the national level on federal issues. <laughs> if you think about it, more often than not, over the past several months, 
of course, we've had federal politicians debating amongst one another, but they've typically been debating housing, uh, which you know generally involves local land use regulations and so on, or how best to organize provincial health care systems, or how many uh, children uh, home daycares ought to have per employees, or any other number of issues uh, for which the federal role is basically zilch, um, besides the use of the federal spending power that we've seen um, uh, grow in prominence under under this particular government. And so I guess if my job on this podcast is to be the glasses half full guy, um, you know, hopefully this sustained period of focused on national issues. What is the role of our national intelligence agencies? Do they have the resources, the capacity, the, the kind of legal framework to, to do their job to protect Canada's national interests? Um, do we have a, a a defense capacity for which our AUKUS, AUKUS members would, would see value in us joining uh, the um, the alliance and any other number of issues um, that ultimately fall within federal jurisdiction. Hopefully, um, this leads to a, a greater focus and emphasis on that type of question in, in, in the next federal election whenever it comes. But I, I can't help but think that you're ultimately right. We're going to have uh, the different parties effectively squabbling over over provincial and local issues and, and ignoring these issues. And I'll just, I'll end here. One of the reasons we find ourselves in this position is because um, because what's passed is prologue. That's what we've been doing for a long time. And the result is our federal state capacity is atrophied. We can't procure ships. You know, we've dedicated scarce resources away from natural, uh, from national defense to provincial healthcare or whatever. Um, and so we're seeing the real world consequences of that neglect of, of federal power, um, you know, dating back some time. Thanks, John. Great insights as always. Well, look, we'll take a quick break, listeners, back on the other side to talk about passports, national symbols. How do we represent ourselves? What the heck is Canada uh, in the spring of 2023? Well, our new passport provides some answers and we'll provide some debate. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub, Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Friday Roundtable at The Hub. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Well, Stuart, to come to you first, um, we've seen this week the debut of a new passport. It's kind of kicked off uh, a debate. Uh, these happen perennially in Canada. Uh, you might be able to set your clock by them every couple of years. Um, Strum and Drang, uh, the renting of clothes and uh, the tearing of garments at you know a representation of Canada. Um, you can think of the great flag debate with Stephen Baker Pearson as being the kind of epigee of, uh, of Canadian fixation on symbols. Well, we had a taste of it this week with the passport. I'd love your take on 
what you think the government was trying to do here, what this passport represents, and maybe for listeners who have not been reading the paper in the last 72 hours, what the heck is this thing and why is it stimulating so much conversation? Yeah, I think as always, Howard Anglin has written on this for us. So as always, that's a must read, I think, if you want to get uh, the best perspective on it. And I, the line in there that I always come back to is Howard says, it's like a committee was given the slogan, blander is always possible. And I think that is what this is. If I were guessing what happened here, it's that it was just sort of all of the potential Twitter dust-ups, offensiveness, anything that would have kicked up a fuss was ironed out of this thing. And it is actually, it's not, it's so boring, it's not offensive. It's just so bland. And it's kind of these um, kind of generic scenes of Canadians playing in the leaves or whatever. There's no actual places. There's no actual figures through the pages. I I don't think I necessarily would have thought of a passport as a place for this kind of stuff. Um, So it doesn't really bother me too much, but it is kind of one of those funny moments of a government just trying, seems to have no idea what it wants out of this. It has no idea of what its perspective on Canadian identity or history is. And it's just given us this kind of bland document. So um, it's not something that I care deeply about, but reading Howard about it, he actually starts off saying he's not angry. And then by the end, he is angry. And that's kind of how I felt about this whole thing. Yeah, he's pissed. I, I think you're right. The listeners should search out the image of the man raking leaves. I just think it's a a perfect metaphor for the autumnal moment that Canada finds itself in, the kind of the slide into winter. Um, and it, it just the utter mediocrity of it, the banality of it, uh, in a sense, the vapidness of our collective self is something we need to own. It is where we've arrived uh, in 2023. In a previous life, I spent a lot of time working and thinking about these issues, leading an organization called the Dominion Institute. I even wrote a book about it called A Citizen's Manifesto. Um, I've got the scars on my back from fighting in the kind of trench wars of Canadian history in the 2000s. And, and now those conversations seem like the Battle of Carthage. I mean, we just seem to... Have I've just gone down this this chute into, Sean, a kind of an oblivion of identity, memory, shared touchstones of national belonging, all of that. I, You know, with regret, I spent 10 years of my life working on these issues. Uh, we lost. Um, Canada has become what this prime minister seemed to champion when he first came to power, a post-national state. And I think the hallmark of a post-national state is a, a nation without an identity. It'll be fascinating to see how this plays out in the years to come, what the costs or opportunities of post-nationalism are. But I feel we are in the thick of it way faster than I ever imagined. Yeah, a ton of insight there, guys. Um, we haven't even mentioned the fact that we have a governor general who's apparently mused publicly about getting rid of the institution that she's supposed to represent, which seems like a, a fitting way to end the week. Um, I, I, of course, agree with uh, everything that has been said on this subject. It 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 does scream out um, that uh, that the the goal here was to effectively sensitize any sense of common 
symbols or shared sense of citizenship or whatever. But let me put a, a different idea on the table and see how you guys react. Um, because here's kind of my take um, on this. I, 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 I put this forward at the risk of um, alienating myself amongst some of my, my friends and others. I'm struck how um, how the government didn't seize the opportunity to um, use the passport as a symbolic um, document to reflect all of its own um, preferences and priorities and values. Like if you would have told me before this week um, that you put a bet to me that that, that they wouldn't turn the, the passport into a, uh, an affirmation of reproductive rights and um, and all of the other uh, kind of liberal boogaboos. I would have I would have taken that bet. Um, so I suppose in that sense, um, it could have been worse. Um, but then it begs the question: Why didn't they? And why are conservatives so invested in these types of symbols? Part of it is temperament and psychology. Um, but sometimes I wonder if part of it is because conservatives are losing the debate on virtually everything else. And so all they have left to cling to are things like adding the prefix royal before the Navy or adding some images of Vimy Ridge and the passport. And progressives are like, yeah, whatever. You can have royal before the Navy. We're going to transform the role of government in the economy or we're going to kind of redefine culture in a way that uh, um, subordinates the primacy of individuals and and elevates um, characteristics like gender, sexuality, and race, and whatever. In that sense, the fact that the government, one way to interpret the government's decision here is the kind of lack of, of uh, understanding of Canadian identity and so on. Part of it is that they just don't have time to concern themselves with these tangential things because they're going about transforming the government and transforming the country. Um, and, and so that's one of the things I've been thinking about this past week in light of the man with a rake. I think he's middle-aged, uh, indeterminate ethnicity, um, a kind of um, amalgam of um, middle-age docility, <laughs> edging towards senility. But Stuart, I want to come to you pick up because this is provocative. I'm enjoying Sean's being provocative today, which is fun. Um, are conservatives, um, in a sense, taking the bait? You know, it's like the bull in the ring. This is the red flag charging at it. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm the cup half empty guy. I mean, I just think... I, I regret this. I mean, again, I spent a decade of my life, guys, you know, arguing for a strong sense of Canadian history, shared civic responsibility. You know, things change. Societies move on. There are, there are waterfall moments, watersheds, you know, pick your image, your symbolism. Um, identity in nations and states is fluid. And I think we have to acknowledge that over the last decade, Canada has undergone a transformation. In some ways, in my view, this passport is a perfect example, as Howard said, of back to Yann Martel, the Canadian author, Life of Pi, his famous remarks of, you know, Canada's a hotel, it's a great place. Um, you know, come and stay. And I think Yann Martel was trying to be optimistic about how Canada was kind of welcoming and convenient. But 
boy, you know, this passport to me, it kind of epitomizes that transformation of how we've ended up as a, a society where very little is asked, um, very little, certainly nothing is almost nothing is demanded. And, um, this passport is a key fob, a key fob to convenience, to a condo in the sky, to, um, you know, a university education, um, middling or, or not, uh, to a lot of things that people want for themselves as opposed to things that we want together. And I guess that's my point, Stuart, maybe my regret, my nostalgia. There seems like very few things that we want together anymore. Uh, you're a good Scotsman. So you come from roots of togetherness, belonging, the chords of history, clanging loudly through the Scottish clans. Um, does this all just seem like a typical Canadian debate? Is it important or can we just sidebar this whole thing as Sean said, you know, move on to the bigger, more important fights? Yeah, I'm prepared to accept that it's a Sisyphusian um, argument, but I, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald had this great speech where he was talking about how he moved to Canada when he was five. I also moved to Canada when I was five and he says it in a way that I was rescued from being a Scotchman. And first of all, the phrase Scotchman would get you in trouble in Scotland these days. So it's doubly offensive to the Scottish, but I kind of feel the same way, which is that I was rescued and brought to Canada and was able to have this great life. And I think gratitude is probably my fundamental feeling about Canada. And I just wish I could articulate that better to people. I wish I could explain that to my children better. And I think history is a big part of that. Um, and I think that the way things have changed is two things. One is that Canada is really different than it was in 1950 and even 1988 when I moved here. Um, and that's because of we're more of a multicultural society. So our identity is going to change. And I think you have to construct your identity as it changes with the country. The other thing is, I think, a societal change, which is a more individualistic society that is more likely to deplore its own history. And I think that is the, the second thing I think is something that just needs to be fought in, in any way you can, which is that, you know, there are bad moments in our history, but of course it, it was building to something great, which is the country that I moved to. And I, I am definitely inclined to believe that that is an uphill struggle to explain that. And maybe it's a lost cause, but um, probably it's the thing that means the most to me in life. I guess the only thing I would add to this uh, conversation is, you know, it's part of the conservative lexicon that politics is downstream from culture. And one idea that I've come to appreciate more in recent years is George Will's idea of statecraft is soulcraft, that that is to say culture and politics are in a two-way conversation. And it seems to me um, one thing that the true government has done, sometimes through action, maybe in this case, sometimes through inaction, has come to have, I think, a pretty profound influence on the culture. I said in a set of remarks at an event in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, um, I think with the fullness of time, we'll appreciate um, how significant the 2015 federal election outcome was. And it's not that we got childcare or a slightly more generous pension plan or whatever. Um, it's that through the use of state power or non-use of state power, um, the Trudeau government has had a pretty profound um, influence on the way we think about our society, 
as you say, Rudyard, the way we think about different orders of government um, and the way we ultimately think about ourselves. Um, and, you know, what's the old adage? Elections matter. Um, I think we'll look back on that election and and say it mattered. And, and it mattered maybe symbolically um, through the passport, but perhaps more importantly, what it's what the passport says uh, about um, the, the government's views of the country and how they've come to manifest themselves in the country itself. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I, I the great insights. I, I think that the the question, the big unanswered question in the decades to come is, can you run a large and let's hope successful diverse society on a minimum of social cohesion? Because I, I think you have to acknowledge that if you're not spending a lot of time thinking or promoting or discussing the things that bind us together, whether they be symbols, history, values and identity. And again, you really kind of lean into this idea of, you know, Hotel California, um, <laughs> north of the border, where it's a, a kind of passport to convenience. And that's fine. A lot of people love and want convenience. There's nothing wrong about having that as a big goal in your life. But if you're committed to this really interesting experiment that Canada is of, you know, now upping immigration to a million people a year, pushing, um, incredible levels of diversity into society, doing all kinds of, again, fascinating, interesting, creative stuff. I think you want a wrapper around that. You want something that provides um, cohesion to a sense of shared uh, responsibility of a kind of civic identity that is the you know, the sum of its parts. It doesn't have to be greater, just simply the sum of its parts. I would accept that. And I think we're all too often looking at the path of least resistance or again into an idea that, hey, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can, we can do all these things that don't require the more difficult work of inculcating, uh, you know, some social solidarity, some social cohesion, some common civic knowledge, maybe dare I even say some common civic virtues across different peoples and regions, ethnicities and identities in Canada. And if we just constantly lean into difference, if difference becomes the moniker of identity, uh, I don't know. I wonder what happens in a moment of social stress, of an economic turndown, of, um, you know, the things that happen to nation states along the way that are unexpected, often painful, often dislocating, you know, does, does the center hold? What is the center? Or do we even have the confidence to talk about the center anymore? So to me, this passport thing is important because it's just another sign in this road that I worry that we're already a long way down a road to the erosion of some collective sense of purpose and identity. Um, so we'll see. It's going to be a fascinating experiment to watch it play out in the years to come. Okay, guys, great show. As always, uh, enjoy this lovely burst of warm May weather. We're at least getting here in Ontario and wishing everyone across uh, the Fruited Plain who's listening to the Hub podcast a terrific weekend and uh, catch the Hub next week. All kinds of great content teed up for you to listen, watch, and read as the week unfolds. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.